This morning's scripture reading comes from Micah 4, verses 1 through 7. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established at the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and the peoples shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples, and shall decide from strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the rem remnant and those who are cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. This is God's word. It is absolutely true and given to us in love. All right, you can be seated. Well, I don't know about your house, uh, but my family, this time of year, we love to watch Christmas movies. Uh, it, is, it is that time of year where we love to watch all of the classics, even if you've seen them a hundred times, uh, Christmas Vacation, and, that's a classic to me, um, <laughs> Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, you know, we just, we, we love to sit around and, and it's amazing to get to kind of show those to your kids for the first time. And it struck me as we watched some of these Christmas movies, uh, how many Christmas stories all basically orient around the same plot. Through a series of crazy events, a character learns the true meaning of Christmas, right? It's all about, uh, these stories are about from, from the story of Ebenezer Scrooge to Charlie Brown. It's about how, what is the true meaning of Christmas? What is this whole Christmas celebration all about? And it, it's, just, it's a story that, that we love to sit around and, and talk about come Christmas. And usually the answer is something like this. You know, what is the true meaning of Christmas? Well, it's not greed. It's not about the presents you get. The true meaning of Christmas, we're told, has something to do with love or giving or family, right? So the true meaning of Christmas has something to do with kind of the positive parts of humanity, our capacity to love one another, our sentimentality. It can end up being kind of a naive faith in the power of human goodness, right? That at Christmas, we just celebrate how great we are, uh, how much we love each other, how much we love our families, one ad, one print ad uh, that ran in a newspaper a number of years ago put it this way. The true meaning of Christmas is that love will triumph and that we will be able to put together a world of unity and peace. Really? That love will triumph and we, who spend the other 364 days a year uh, tearing each other apart, are going to be able to contribute to a world uh, of unity and peace. Well, the Christian uh, telling of the Christmas story 
is actually exactly the opposite. Uh, it's that because of our absolute inability to, through our own love and charity and goodness, put together a world of unity and peace, God himself had to invade this world, had to come into this world, taking on flesh and bone and blood, that he had to enter into this world precisely because we weren't figuring it out, precisely because we were committed to running away from him, uh, to damaging our fellow human beings and the world that he gave us, that he had to actually enter into the world in order to restore the world. You know, this week I had a, uh, uh, not a particularly fun week, but uh, one of the low points was uh, on, on Tuesday. Remember that torrential rain we got overnight on Monday? Just, we hadn't had a rain like that in a long time. Precisely, I can tell you for a fact, we haven't had a rain like that since Hurricane Matthew. Uh, because right about 8 o'clock, as I was dropping off my son at school, I got uh, the phone call from Haley that everybody loves to get. Dave, the roof is leaking. Uh, there's, there's water pouring down uh, into our children's bedroom. I said, oh, no. We knew, I, saw, I had seen, after Matthew, seen some shingles in the lawn. And so we were, getting, we were getting estimates. We were in the midst of trying to get our roof fixed. And now with this, this downpour, oh, no, we've got a leak. And so I you know, drop Houston off at school, divert through Lowe's, buy a tarp, uh, buy some nails, quickly Google how do you tarp a roof, um, get up on the roof. I hate heights. One thing you should know about me, it's, I, I, I do not like being, this is, this is fine, um, but much higher than this, and I start to get nervous. And so here I am on the roof, pelting rain, old roof, slick with water, you know, dragging a tarp up there, nailing it down, trying to get it fixed. And so I did, eventually, uh, get the roof tarped down. Now, there's now a lovely-looking bright blue tarp over the back of our roof. I could not go to Haley and say, honey, good news, I fixed the roof. I've restored our roof to wholeness. No, what have I done? I've, I've just patched over the roof, right? I have temporarily relieved the waterfall uh, that was in my children's room, but I haven't fixed the roof. I've just patched it. For it to get fixed, for it to get mended, for it to get truly restored, I'm going to have to call a roofer who has the skill, who has the knowledge, who has the expertise to come in and actually restore the roof. And for really the message of Micah is that human beings, all of our best efforts, all of our best efforts at fixing our lives and fixing our, our world are essentially just efforts to patch over what's broken. Uh, and that ultimately we need someone to come in and restore What's, what's broken. That left to ourselves, all we're going to be able to do, the best we can manage, is to patch it over, to cover it up. But we don't have the power. We don't have the skill. We don't have the goodness to actually be able to restore our own lives and to restore our own world. I think we all, if, if you're anything like me, you have spent a lot of time uh, trying to patch over the leaks in your life. Right? Our best efforts at mending our lives are just patches. Right? We believe if we, if we start to break some bad habits and pick up some new habits, right, that our lives are going to fundamentally get better. If we, learned, if we read the right books and learn the right skills, we're going to somehow become more loving as friends, as parents, as spouses. We think that we can make our lives new, but really we can just kind of patch it over for a little while. Right? Our, our best habits might stick for, for a little while, and then we're going to over time, they're just not going to last. Right? Our best efforts uh, at mending our broken relationships, just kind of patching over the damage that's been done. 
our very best political ideas, our very best social programs, are just an attempt to patch over the damage of sin in the world. But for the world to really be restored, for it to be really made new, to have that kind of hope, requires a power, requires a goodness and a knowledge beyond us. It requires what we celebrate at Advent, God himself entering into our lives, entering into our world, not just to make it look a little better, not just to stem the damage, but to actually mend everything that's torn, to set straight everything that's broken. And that's the picture uh, that Micah paints for us in Micah 4. It's an incredibly beautiful picture. But he begins to paint a picture of the hope, the hope of the world that God will restore, the hope of what God will do. We see that it's, a, that it's an absolutely comprehensive hope. It's a comprehensive hope that begins to kind of touch on every single element of human life. He starts with this vision of the mountain of the house of the Lord being lifted up to be the chief of all of the mountains of the earth. You see, in Israel, uh, the temple sits on top of a mountain. Really, it's a, it's a good-sized hill. Uh, but there at the top of the hill, the temple mount in Jerusalem, sits the temple. And this wasn't unique to Israel. You see, in the ancient world, in the ancient Near East in particular, mountains were places where you, meant to, where you went to meet with God. Mountains were the place where you built your temple. It's just what you did, right? Mountains were assumed to be, to be places where the barrier between heaven and earth was very, very thin, right? So whether it was Israel or some of their pagan neighbors, they would often build shrines and temples there on the tops of mountains. Mountains were viewed as places where you could be near to God, right? It makes sense if you think of God as above somehow, that to be a mountain, you get a little bit closer to him. It was the place where it was thought that God revealed himself, where he spoke to his people. It was thought to be a place where his people could meet with him. It was thought to be the seat where the God of whatever territory could look out over all of his territory and rule and serve as king. And so what Micah's vision is, is that of all the mountains of the earth, of all of the thin places where people seek God, where they try to know him, the mountain of Jerusalem in that day is going to become the highest of all the mountains. Right? It's, now, it's a decent-sized little hill. But in that day, it's going to become like Mount Everest, the tallest mountain in the world, a mountain that you have to kind of glint through your eyes to try to see. It's going to be exalted. It's going to be the place that everyone knows that if you're looking for God, that's where he's to be found. That's the thin place between heaven and earth. Micah goes on to say that all the peoples shall flow to it. Right? All the peoples of the earth, are like everyone who's on a pilgrimage, seeking to find God, seeking to know God, is going to flow like a river towards this temple, towards this mountain, that they are going to come, and they're going to come to know God. Right? So the vision is that no longer is this temple going to be primarily for the people of Israel. Right? It's not going to be simply for, for the people of ethnic Israel to come to know God. Right? It's not only going to be just for those who are ritually clean and who've kept the law, but it's going to be for Gentile people too, that all kinds of people of all of the known world are going to flow like, like every river flows into the sea. Everyone is going to flow towards the mountain where God can be known. And when they get there, they're going to learn how to live says that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his path. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. 
So you see the image is that all the peoples of the world are going to gather, they're going to come to know God and all of his goodness and grace. They're going to learn there how to live. They're going to learn what it means to be a human being in a relationship with God. They're going to learn how they were designed to live and to function. And then they're going to, just as they flowed into Jerusalem, they're going to go out. The covenant and the, this idea of how to live is going to go out and it's going to spread over the, the face of the whole earth. Everyone uh, will learn what it means to walk with God. And then look at this, verse 3. He shall judge between many peoples and he shall decide for strong nations far away. Right? God's, God's king, his Messiah, seated in Jerusalem is going to be mediating international disputes. Right? So the the king of Russia, or the president of Russia, uh, and the, the president of the U.S., say, yeah, we're having a debate over something, right? We, well, let's go, to, let's go to the Messiah, figure out how to have our debate settled, right? The people of Palestine and the people of Israel, go, oh, we're stuck in this debate. Let's go and have the Messiah. Let's have God's king teach us how to resolve our dispute, how to live at peace with one another. And there will be this global desire to have the king, to have God's king, settle these international disputes that right now we just go to war over. And then one of the most beautiful promises anywhere in Scripture, they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And the nation shall not lift up sword against nation, and neither shall they learn war anymore. Right? Because all the people are going to learn how to live with God and they're going to, they're going to have him administering justice, they're not going to need weapons anymore. They're going to take the, the, their swords and they're going to have to figure out another use for them. They're going to beat them into a plow. They're going to take their tanks and say, well, I don't know. I guess it could pull the plow through the field. I guess that's all it's good for anymore. Right? It says they're not going to learn war anymore. Right? Sorry, I know we've got a lot of Navy guys here. Right? In that world, you're going to have to find something else to do. <laughs> There's not going to be a need. We just sell it. We just, everybody gathered to watch the Army-Navy game, right? the two military academies. There's not going to be any more military academies. They're not going to train for war anymore. They're not going to have to learn how to kill one another, learn how to defeat one another. Because in that day, when the king comes in his justice, everyone's going to desire peace and wholeness and unity. And they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. The vine and the fig were, were symbols of prosperity. They were symbols of abundance. And so the idea is now no longer terrified, no longer worried about their neighbors. Each one sits in his own property. Each one sits with his own crop and is satisfied by it. Right? There's something about the, the insatiable human desire for more. Right? To say, I'm not satisfied with my vine and my figs. I need my neighbors. But it's now satisfied and we rest complete and whole. You notice um, a couple of things. First, notice that Micah's hope, his hope for the whole world, isn't, it's not that we're going to get to leave this world one day and go live in heaven somewhere and float on clouds and play harps and be happy. No, his vision of what it's going to be like is this world. This world is torn and fractured as it is, made new and made whole again. Right? That's his vision, is for a transformed creation. And you might look at this and think, you know, this just sounds, this sounds too good to be true. This sounds like pie-in-the-sky escapism. 
It sounds like something that Christians believe in order to kind of mitigate against the pain of this world. We just live in this you know, futuristic world where everything's going to be fine, everything's going to be great. That hope seems, for many of us, in the midst of our cynicism, in the midst of what we know to be true about this world, hope seems really far removed from us. It feels like a, like a pipe dream. And so we need to realize that in, in Micah, and to Micah, and to the rest of the stories of the Scripture, that ho- this hope is not only a comprehensive hope, but it's also a realized hope. It's a hope that's already begun to be realized in this world, as broken as it is. Look at Micah uh, 4.1, the very beginning. He says, it shall come to pass in the latter days. Right? So you start to think, okay, well, what are the latter days? When is it that this vision is going to come to pass? And we can think, you know, with our, our imaginations, we can think, oh, it must be someday way out there. That's what those, you know, that's what the left behind books are telling us all about, right? It's that some future day when, when all this stuff's going to happen. But the authors of the New Testament consistently use the phrase latter days to describe the coming of Jesus, to describe the period of human history that began that day in Bethlehem, that began when the baby was born, into a manger, that that is actually the beginning of the latter days, right? Hebrews chapter 2, the author of Hebrews says that in times past, God spoke to us through his prophets, but in these latter days, he's spoken to us in the person of his son. Peter at, at Pentecost refers to the coming of Jesus as the dawn of the latter days, right? So this stretches the imagination a little bit. Right, to, to think that that day, that night in Bethlehem, while the rest of the world went about their business, while Mary, an unwed teen mother, had a baby in a barn, and the rest of the world went on its way, that what was actually happening was this world, this world that we've just described, was getting birthed into this broken world that it was starting to break out from Bethlehem into the rest of the world, that if you could see with the eyes of faith, you would have felt an earthquake under your feet as the tectonic plates of the world shifted, and all of a sudden you'd see the temple erupting up like Mount Everest. You'd see the vast gap between heaven and earth crossed over and bridged, that Jesus in himself, in his person, in the body that was born on Christmas, the body that we anticipated Advent, was the beginning of this vision, right? That it ended up not being, you know, Micah Micah attached the best words he could ascribe to it, that the temple was going to erupt up towards heaven so that we could be near to God. It ended up being heaven itself erupting down into earth, kind of a reverse mountain, a mountain protruding from heaven down into earth. Right, No longer the the thin place between heaven and earth being found on mountains and in temples. Humanity no longer left to climb the mountains on our own to get close to God. But Jesus himself becoming the place where heaven and earth meet. Right In John chapter 2, Jesus says about his own body, if you tear this temple down, I'll rebuild it in three days. Right, That the temple is now no longer a brick and mortar structure, but the temple is the body of Jesus. Right? That's what, hap- that's what happened in Bethlehem. A new temple was built. A new temple was born. A place where humanity and God could meet. Right? If you think about the past mountains where God met with his people, 
You have Mount Sinai where God spoke the law, a mountain where his holiness and his glory was so tangible that if anyone touched it, they would die. Right? You had the Temple Mount where, where, yes, there was a courtyard where Gentiles could gather and a little courtyard where normal Israelites could gather. But the heart of the mountain, the top of the mountain, only the priest could enter and only once a year. Right? And now in this mountain, through Jesus, it's saying, no, now the people can flow towards it. Now, because of God's grace, that sin that would cause anyone who neared Mount Sinai to die, when you approach this temple, when you approach this mountain, because of the covering of God's grace, you can approach and live and find a real communion with God. We see in the life and ministry of Jesus all the peoples flowing to him. Right? It's the one thing that stands out as you read any of the Gospels is the ways that the crowds of people flowed towards Jesus. Sinners and saints, men and women, rich and poor, everyone was just drawn to Jesus because he held out this life with God. The peoples flowed towards him. Right? He went up onto a hill and he taught them how to live. As it says here, that they would, they would learn the covenant, they would learn the law and go out. Right? Jesus taught people how to live with God, the Sermon on the Mount, right? How to, how to be knit together no longer as a people torn apart by war, but as a people knit together in love and in unity. You know, we have to understand uh, that this vision of a, of a people uh, that, were, that were marked not by violence, not by prejudice, not by division, but by unity, uh, the body that became the church would, be, would have been an absolutely crazy foreign idea in Jesus' world and in Paul's world. The idea of a transnational, transcultural, transracial, transsocioeconomic body of people made up of people who spoke every different language, who lived on every continent, but who prayed the same prayers, sang the same songs, looked to the same God. Right? If you had told any of Jesus' contemporaries, any of Paul's contemporaries, that that's what's going to happen in the world, they would have thought you were crazy. And that's how this, the beginnings of this vision of the peoples no longer living at enmity with one another, but living at peace, it starts to get fleshed out through Christ and through his church, through his people. And so we see uh, Jesus knitting together uh, a community of peace. And that, that realized hope, is Micah's vision. And it's what we celebrate at Advent. Jesus comes uh, not to patch over what's broken in the world, not to patch over the cracks in our lives, but to heal us, to restore us in the world and to make us new. There's this great, uh, there's this great scene in Return of the King, the last of the uh, Lord of the Rings books. I, I try to limit myself to one Lord of the Rings illustration per year, um, just out, just so I don't, it's, it's a little overdone. But there's this great scene at the end of the Return of the King uh, where Aragorn, the true king, uh, comes back uh, to his throne but he doesn't want to be known yet, so he comes in disguise. He comes as the ranger. So he's, he's cloaked and he's in disguise. But it's after the big battle and he's there in the houses of healing and he starts to, to heal people. He starts to combine uh, medicines and starts to work and heal these, these people wounded in battle. And one of the people, uh, one of the hobbits, looks and sees him. And he remembers a verse. He remembers a, a line from some of the old prophecies of that world. The prophecy uh, that goes, the hands of the king are the hands of a healer, and so shall the rightful king be known. 
The hands of the king are the hands of a healer, and so shall the rightful king be known. Right? Tolkien's vision of the king was, was shaped by his, his faith. And that's what we see happening in the life of Jesus. As we see Jesus healing the sick and raising the dead and giving sight to the blind, it's so that we can see that the hands of the king are bringing healing. They're bringing wholeness to the world. And that in recognizing him, we trust him to bring ultimate wholeness and ultimate health to our lives and to our world. Do you know this king? Do you know the king who came not just offering advice to make you better, but who came to make you new? who came not just to make you better, but to make you new. Right? Jesus isn't and doesn't claim to be uh, just another great religious teacher who came with good advice, good wisdom to help you become a little bit better. Right? He came as a king who said you're never going to get better. <laughs> That's the bad news. Right? You can wear yourself out from trying, but you're never going to get any better. I came not just to make you a little bit better. I came to remake you. I came to make you new again. I came to give you, by my grace, a hope of absolute newness. I've had this week the rather heart-wrenching experience uh, of walking with a, a man uh, through going into the hospital uh, for what he thought was pneumonia, uh, finding out that it was cancer, finding out that it was over most of his body, um, and finding out that he had a very, very short time uh, to live. Um, and as someone that he trusts, I've been invited into that to, to kind of walk with him as a pastor. And it has been, it has been absolutely heartrending. Uh, it's been hard to, to sit with him and his family. It's been hard to sit with this brilliant and strong man as he realizes that all of his brilliance and all of his strength um, isn't a solution to this. And when you're with someone in that setting, in that place where mortality feels so real, where life is measured in, in weeks and months, he doesn't need advice on how to get better. Right? He doesn't need uh, advice for, for how to mend his own life, for how to improve himself. What does he need? He needs the, the grace of God and the hope that you, you, you may not get much better in six weeks, right? but you can be made new. You can live in newness. You can walk in newness. Your broken body can be made whole and healthy and new again. You can be remade by Jesus. And as, as harrowing as it is walking into hospital rooms like that, quite, quite honestly, I'm still not quite used to it. It reveals what's really the truth of our lives, right? That whether you've got 60 years or six weeks to, let, to live, you don't just need advice on how to do a little bit better with your life. You need the good news that Jesus came to make you whole again. He came to restore you to God. He came to restore you to yourself. He came to restore you to your neighbors and one day to restore the whole world. That Jesus comes to make all things new. And that's what we celebrate at Advent. You know, it doesn't take a genius uh, to look out at our world and then to look at Micah 4 and go, beat their, prunes into, beat their weapons into, uh, into plowshares. No, that doesn't, that's not happening. Uh, sits at peace with one another under his own vine. No, that's not what's really going on here. Right? There is a disconnect uh, between the world that, that Micah talks about and the world that we inhabit. Right? There just is. In this world, people do get cancer. In this world, we do find ourselves in broken relationships that it seems beyond hope that they'll be mended. 
We live with lives that we don't see how they'll be mended. Uh, even John the Baptist, you know, maybe the, the scriptures tell us was the greatest person and prophet that ever lived before Jesus, right? Even he, man of incredible faith, during Jesus' earthly ministry found himself in prison, found himself eventually beheaded just at the whim of a drunk king, right? Decided he wanted to give John the Baptist's head to a dancer at a party. That John the Baptist reached out to Jesus and said, Jesus, are you the one who is to come or should we expect somebody else? Right, look, I know that this is what the kingdom's supposed to look like, peace and wholeness and healing and goodness, and yet me, I'm in prison. My life's threatened. Are, should we be looking for another Messiah or are you the one who is to come? And so what we see is that Jesus, though he inaugurates the latter days, though he starts the birthing of this new world, that he doesn't consummate it in its fullness yet. That's why Advent is a time of waiting, even for us on this side of Jesus. It's a time where we wait for him to come and finish the work. And in the meantime, we, his church, live to embody and proclaim that world in the midst of this one. Where are we in this story? Look at verse 6, uh, 6 and 7. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame. Sorry, that's us. And gather those who've been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant. And those who are cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. Right, Christians living in this world are marked by both an incredible boldness. Because we believe in this. We believe this is what Jesus has come to do. We believe that that Jesus is the temple. We believe that there's not a thousand different ways to get to God, but that there's one mountain, one temple, one Christ. And that should give us a boldness that to many in our world verges on arrogance, right? To say that we, we have hope and we can look to it and we can, we can with some sense of authority say, this is the hope. But we also should be marked by an incredible humility, an incredible brokenness. Because in this story, we're the lame. We're the ones who, when we come flowing into the temple, we do it limping and dragging a bad leg. We do it only half able to see the road ahead of us through our cloudy eyes. We do it carrying one another at times on our way there. We're the lame. We're the foreigners, those who are on the outside, who are never expected to find their way into God's kingdom. And so we should be incredibly broken, incredibly humble about our message, that we're only included by God's grace because he, he chose lame, busted, broken people to begin to announce and to begin to walk in this new world, even in the midst and the shadow of this one. Let's pray that he would enable us for this. Lord Jesus, you came to make all things whole. Uh, you came to make all things new. And we acknowledge that in this life, um, so little seems new. Uh, so much seems broken. So much seems busted. And yet, Lord, give us the faith uh, to turn to Jesus, to turn to our risen King and to believe that he who defeated death, he whose body came from the tomb new and whole again, will someday beckon us and our world into newness, into an absolutely mended and restored order. Lord, as we live in this world, help us to live in the hope of that world. As we walk through this Advent season, help us to, to realize the magnitude 
the incredible breadth and depth of the hope that was born in Bethlehem. And help us seeing that vision, seeing that end, to align our lives, all of our energy, all of our treasure, all of our energy towards seeking the kingdom. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.